With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday june 27th 2008 this week episode 87 comes to you from beautiful coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe and here with me in the studio is the z-man cliff slotnick hey good afternoon joe and at the controls is the wingman chris boisel Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, gentlemen. It looks like we also have our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, on the line here. Let's say hello to Dieter. Hey there, good day. Good day, Dieter. Guten Tag. Welcome back. My eyes are open. All right. You're a little, a little, uh, sign could be a little bit better. Maybe we have, let's try that again, Dieter. I can try this for There you go. That's much that's better, better. Much better. Much better. better. All right. Okay. We'll, we'll bring you back in a little bit. Thanks for joining sure. us. No problem. Okay. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, and we've got Alan Zelikoff, MD, on the show today. We're going to, looking forward to a great show. The roundtable will be at the end of the show. We're going to bring everybody back in, round things up, ask a few questions of each other. We've been working on the IAQRadio.com website, adding a blog every week after the show. Check it out when you get a chance at IAQRadio.com. Let's thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at MicrobandSystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at IEConnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Okay, to contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444. Enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1. 
and you can join the show. You can also streamline or stream the show through the internet with or without downloading the TalkShoe software. If you want, you can download that TalkShoe software at TalkShoe.com, or you can just go to the IAQRadio.com site and follow the link that says go to the show. We appreciate suggestions. We'll answer questions, take requests. If you email us at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Don't forget, you can also get your IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ console renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. Again, that email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, Please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question for this week. Thanks, Joe. Good afternoon, listeners. Unfortunately, no correct answers to last week's trivia question. All right, the trivia question for Friday, June 27, 2008 is, what year was the influenza vaccine first introduced in the United States? What year was the influenza, okay, vaccine first introduced? All right, Cliff, thank you. And I guess that's the only one open now, huh? Uh, no, I think last week, yeah, last week. Last week's, okay. Last week and this week are all that we have open. All right, trivia players, get back to us here. That's right. I think, we, I think we have some opening comments. The health concern that's uh, kind of fallen by the wayside, it was big news uh, a while ago, but it's still always present. And that's the possibility um, that uh, there may be a, a, a smallpox epidemic in this country. Unbelievable. A smallpox epidemic. How could that be possible? And the reason is because uh, the smallpox vaccine that we were given and that I was told was going to last forever <laughs> wore off. And our government waited until a possible emergency condition to inform us. Okay. Alan P. Zelikoff, MD of Albuquerque, New Mexico, is a physician, inventor, physicist, author, and specialist in the control of biological weapons. He served as a senior scientist with the Center for National Security and Arms Control at Sandia National Laboratories. He has testified before Congress on public health issues and published op-eds in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, and along with Michael Bellamo, authored three books, Microbe, Are We Ready for the Next Plague, Doctor, Just Don't Do Something, Stand There, and More Harm Than Good, What Your Doctor May Not Tell You About Common Treatments and Procedures. Dr. Zelikoff, thank you for taking the time to speak with Joe and I and our listeners today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's get some basic background started. Can you tell us what is an epidemic and how does that differ from an outbreak? Uh, they're really terms of art. Uh, an epidemic is a large enough outbreak to cause concern and a systematic response over a large area, say a state or a country. An outbreak is when an epidemiologist or public health official says there's an outbreak. And it can be one case when you're talking about something that is either highly lethal or very communicable 
for example, measles, one case of measles in the United States would be considered a literally a, a four-alarm disaster that has to be addressed immediately, uh, whereas uh, a, an outbreak of 100 people with a cold, uh, while it's a communicable disease, since it has far less of an impact, doesn't engender the same response. So outbreaks are really when the, when the local public health official says we have one. And an epidemic is generally regarded as an outbreak that is large enough to encompass a big region or an entire country. What, what is a pandemic as opposed to the epidemic? Pandemic by definition means, uh, it literally comes from the Greek pandemos, which means everywhere that there are people. Uh, and so by definition, it's a multi-continent epidemic. So we have pandemics all of the time. Uh, they tend to be mild. So there are, there are always pandemics, for example, of, uh, of, of common cold viruses. But usually the context in which the term is used is with regard to something far more consequential. A communicable disease like influenza, or God forbid, if, if anybody should reintroduce uh, smallpox, uh, which has been eliminated as a naturally occurring disease via an act of terrorism. What about... Uh your opinion on what, how would the next pandemic would most likely occur? Um, we have so few pandemics of consequence to point at that it's, it's uh, an interesting discussion question, but very difficult to get a precise answer. But here's, here's what I think history tells us. It is almost certainly going to be the case that the next pandemic, which by definition is in people, um, pandemics refer to people, whereas panzootics would refer to animals or birds, will almost certainly start off as a disease in uh, animals uh, and probably in birds. So classically, the pandemics uh, of, of history that uh, we're aware of are influenza, uh, the plague, which still exists as a naturally occurring organism and always will. It's, it cannot be eradicated from the environment. Um, and uh, then, of course, uh, smallpox was a, was a pandemic until um, the early part of the 20th century and was finally eliminated in 1977. Now, uh, both plague and influenza, which still circulate, of course, and always will, because they have a natural animal host uh, or hosts, um, both, both of these diseases um, are um, mutable, uh, meaning the, the organism that causes them tends to undergo mutation far more commonly, by the way, for influenza than, than for, for plague. And so my guess is that if we have another pandemic, meaning a serious disease that affects people all over the globe, it will be one that, is, that probably originates in the animal population. And this is why a, a number of people have recently recognized um, the importance of not just doing disease surveillance in the human population, which we, which we do very haphazardly, some places good, most places not so well in the United States in particular, but also monitoring the health of the animal population, which is something that um, is, is often overlooked. So there's, a, there's almost a wall. Um, it's embarrassing to say as a professional, but there's, there's almost a wall between physicians and veterinarians. They just don't talk to each other. Yet they both have um, quite a bit to offer uh, each other, and it is likely that uh, the next pandemic disease is 
first going to be recognized in an animal population, and that, of course, will be almost certainly done by a veterinarian. But before I ask you my question, there, there's something that, that you said that uh, struck me. You commented that plague can never be eliminated, and I just wondered why. Well, it's endemic in a number of uh, rodent-like populations, ground squirrels, for example, uh, prairie dogs. And unless you can envision eliminating all the ground squirrels in the world, which is um, just physically impossible, then the natural reservoir for the most common form of plague that we know about, the kind that tends to cause uh, bubonic plague in humans, meaning infection in the lymph nodes that can then disseminate into the bloodstream, unless you can envision some way of getting rid of all the ground squirrels, you're and why would you want to do that a priori? Uh, that would be an undesirable thing to do env environmentally. Um, then you simply can't get rid of the natural reservoir. The distinction with smallpox is that smallpox is a human, or was, a human-only disease. There was no natural reservoir for it. And the other organisms for which this is true are measles and polio. So we're getting very close to eradicating measles and polio as naturally occurring diseases in humans, because humans are the only hosts, at least we think that uh, that's the case. It was certainly the case for smallpox. But because plague and influenza, for example, are naturally occurring diseases in non-human animals, uh, you simply can't eliminate the natural host, nor, would, nor I, would, I would posit would you ever really want to. What is a zoonotic disease? By definition, it's a, a disease whose natural host is not human, but which can get into the human population. So influenza is the classic zoonotic disease. Uh, it is a disease of birds. Uh, there are multiple variants of influenza because, as I mentioned, the, the virus itself mutates quite frequently and often mutates in such a way as to be a viable uh, organism that can go on to infect birds that have been infected with other varieties of influenza in the past. And it occasionally gets into the human population. So when, when we, from the human perspective, from the anthropomorphic perspective, if you will, uh, talk about zoonotic disease, we're talking about diseases that, uh, in, generally infectious diseases, that occur in animals that occasionally get into the human population. People in your part of the country may be familiar with a big outbreak of a zoonotic disease uh, that took place in Milwaukee in, in 1994, if I recall correctly. And it was, a, it was an amoeba-like organism, a protozoa-like organism called cryptosporidiosis, a big long name, that causes a mild diarrheal illness in, in cattle and, and um, calves. But when it got into the water supply in Milwaukee, uh, and due to apparent, apparently a dysfunction in the, in the water, uh, water uh, purification system, it got into the human water supply, and it caused an unsettling disease in several hundred thousand people, and in people who were immunocompromised, people with cancer, some people who were HIV positive at the time, uh, it actually caused several hundred deaths. Um, so that's a classical example of a zoonotic disease that has one other uh, characteristic about it that is particularly worrisome, which is that the vector involved in transmitting that disease was something that's ubiquitous, which was the water supply. 
So that is a particularly lethal combination. When you have a zoonotic disease, a disease of animals, that also has a vector that can transmit it into humans. And there, the classical example, one that everyone has heard about, is malaria, and in the United States, West Nile fever, which is a disease of birds. It doesn't directly get into humans, but if mosquitoes bite birds, they can pick up the, the virus, and then if they bite humans, they can transmit the disease to humans. So there's a zoonotic disease with a vector, and it often causes very serious disease in humans. Doctor, should the American, you know, while we're talking about these zoonotic diseases, should should the American public fear the avian flu, the H5N1? Not this particular avian flu, not the H5N1 in my view. Now, there's a lot of controversy about this, and a lot of money has been spent on preparing for a possible pandemic from H5N1. Um, let me give you a bit of background, if, if that's okay. Uh, so that um, listeners understand the distinction among all these flavors or, or types of influenza that are out there. Um, influenza, uh, as I said, is a naturally occurring bird disease. And the virus itself, when it multiplies inside of the cells of the bird's respiratory tract or the gastrointestinal tract, often undergoes mutation uh, simply because it, 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 uh, it's, DNA, it's a RNA, it's genetic material, when it is reproduced, uh, often uh, uh, is reproduced with copying errors, literally in the process of reproducing the uh, RNA that are not corrected for by any metabolic machinery um, in the virus or in the host cells. Well, what this means is that new types of influenza that have different characteristics and in particular have different coatings on their surface can emerge, and from time to time, these uh, new influenza viruses cause massive bird die-offs, and we have seen huge numbers of birds dying from H5N1 because they're not immune to the new type of influenza that has, has come about. And on very rare occasions, will directly enter into the human population and also have the characteristic of being transmissible from human to human. That's what happened in 1918. Uh, or we believe so, a direct introduction of a new bird uh, flu virus into some small number of humans that just so happened to cause both highly lethal disease or highly uh, mortal disease and also happened to be transmissible. So you need at least three things for a pandemic to occur, probably more, but at least three we're all agreed on which is that it's a new type of virus to which humans do not have immunity that's in the bird population. Second, that it gets from the bird population either directly into humans or via some intermediate host into humans where it presumably adapts, such as in pigs or occasionally in, in other mammals. And then finally, it has to be able to transmit from human to human. Those are three big steps. And the... Uh, the the pandemic of 1918 that um, many people have read about, um, many people in the Pittsburgh area, for example, died from. I know of two of my uh, relatives who died in 1918 from the, uh, from the influenza pandemic, is a statistical outlier. It is simply an extraordinarily rare event. 
Now, where reasonable people disagree is, even though it's an extraordinarily rare event, if it does occur, the consequences are so high that uh, the impact would just be so enormous, even though it's an unlikely thing to occur, that we need to prepare for it. Where I tend to differ from most of the scientific opinion, although it's slowly been changing over the past two years, is that it struck me when H5N1 first appeared in approximately 1997, it, even though it did in fact get from birds directly into humans, we had pretty good epidemiological evidence for that, it wasn't transmitting at all well from human to human, and one more important factor was there are many, many contacts every day, particularly in Southeast Asia, which is where this virus arose, between birds and humans, because most um, uh, people who buy birds for consumption buy live birds, literally in live animal markets, something that's not very common in the United States. Well, there were many hundreds of millions, perhaps even billions, of interactions um, on, a, on a yearly basis between birds and and humans, yet we only had a few dozen cases uh, back in the uh, late 1990s. And it simply struck me that there must therefore be already existing an inherent immunity in humans, probably because of exposure to previous strains of influenza that were close enough to H5N1 so that we had either antibodies or other immune um, responses that would render us effectively protected against H5N1. And, and the good news is that since uh, I first put this hypothesis forward, and it, it really didn't get me any Christmas cards from my <laughs> health, um, it, a number of experiments have been done in animals, and also some um, experiments have been done with human white cells, literally taking the white cells from a random selection of people in North America see if their white cells would kill the H5N1 virus. And the good news is almost everybody in the United States, at least those uh, people who are adults, we haven't done the testing with children's white cells yet, have immunity to H5N1, at least in the Petri dish. And with the experimental uh, evidence that we've been able to, to do in, in uh, animals by immunizing them with the standard garden variety influenza that is already circulating in humans, they are then protected against H5N1. So the original observations that um, I put forward um, in 2002 or so have now largely been verified. Now, I am not here to say that it's impossible for H5N1 to undergo further mutations to make it both infectious for humans, avoid the immunity that currently exists, and also become transmissible from person to person. Could that happen? It could. It's impossible to prove a negative. It's just extraordinarily unlikely, and we have many more important things to worry about that we're uh, unfortunately ignoring, and we're spending a, still a tremendous amount of money preparing specifically for an H5N1 pandemic. Now, some people would then go on to argue, even if that turns out to be uh, correct, that, that, uh, that there is not going to be a pandemic of H5N1, having gone through the exercise of preparing for a pandemic is a good thing, and it was, was a responsible use of resources. And I partially agree with that. We should be prepared for a pandemic. 
unfortunately much of the money that we spent is directed almost exclusively at the detection of and vaccines for H5N1 alone. And that is where I differ with many people in the public health system. So I, maybe I've, you've answered this in a way already, but I just want to clarify, are the pathogens which can cause these pandemics, are they geographically isolated or are they everywhere? Well, birds are everywhere, aren't they? And so if if H5N1 gets into long-distance migratory birds, there's a, there's a reasonable concern that it will eventually show up in North America uh, because migratory birds, some, some migratory birds literally migrate from pole to pole. So we're talking many thousands of miles, and they tend to intermingle with uh, birds that, are, uh, that have similar migratory routes or where the migratory uh, paths cross. So that was another reason that was put forward that it's only a matter of time before H5N1, which is um, uh, found throughout Southeast Asia, and a small amount now in Eastern Europe and in North Africa, will eventually arrive in the United States. Even that, though, I, I thought was, was probably not correct, because we've not seen that with other influenza viruses. It's, it's a, it only occasionally happens that birds will somehow cross-infect other birds and that new strains of influenza will become ubiquitous. It does happen, but it's, but it's rare. And we haven't seen it yet in the United States. It's unlikely that we will, and to the extent that we have seen it in, in Europe, primarily Eastern Europe and North Africa, it seems to have occurred mostly because of uh, trade in poultry. That is to say, in, in the meat market, effectively, not due to bird migrations. And you may say, well, why, why is this? And, and part of the answer appears to be that if the H5N1, the, the, the virus in the birds, is pathogenic, meaning causes bad disease in the birds, well, then they can't migrate long distances. Or to put it very simply, dead ducks don't fly very well. <laughs> and so... And so um, it, it appears, despite the fact that the virus has been endemic in the bird population now since at least 1997 and probably well before that, we still have no evidence of it at all in North America. Could it happen? It could. Uh, and if you're a chicken, you're in trouble if that happens. <laughs> but as far as, as far as humans are concerned, even if H5N1 enters into the population of birds, I don't think humans are at risk. There's one other point I want to make about this, because we, we have a, a similar pathogen, uh, an influenza virus that's related to H5N1. It's called H5N2, and th th that's simply referring to a slight change in one of the two main uh, molecules on the surface of the virus that is in the United States. And it does cause disease in birds. And uh, it does cause disease in birds that are important for human consumption, so I'm talking about primarily chickens, um, other poultry as well, but primarily chickens. So in the southeast United States, we do have H5N2. Therefore, because veterinarians take care of these l enormous flocks of birds, you might be talking about 100,000 or more birds in a um, in a chicken laying in a uh, in an egg laying facility or in a chicken raising facility. 
you might expect then, since it's a new influenza virus and humans are having direct contact with it, that some of the vets would get sick. Well, no vets have gotten sick. But when we look at those vets and test them to see if they have antibodies against H5N2, which is very closely related to H5N1, we find that at least 30% of the vets, it's probably higher now, this is a two-year-old study, at least 30% of the veterinarians taking care of animal flocks, primarily chickens, with a closely related H5N2 virus, have antibodies against H5N2, meaning they had to have been infected, but none of them got clinical illness. And that's exactly what is happening with H5N1. People are in fact getting infected because they come in contact with birds, but only rarely do they develop clinical disease. Why? Because they already have immunity, to at least a partial immunity to the, to the virus so that they can then develop fully protective antibodies against the virus. And, and we already have a model of it now in the United States for H5N2. So one more reason why I'm not particularly concerned about H5N1, but I am concerned about the general problem of pandemic infectious disease and our lack of preparedness for it. Well, we're going to talk about bioterrorism and suggestions for fixing the problem in the second half of the interview. I think what we'd like to do is bring our technical director, Dr. Weil, on and uh, see if he has any comments on the first half. Hello, Dieter. Yep, I just got unmuted. Well, I'm obviously not an expert in infectious diseases. In fact, while I was listening, I was trying to find, I lost the book, it's called, published by the World Health Organization, A Control of Communicable Diseases, I think. I don't know what I did with it. I once took it to some seminars what I gave, uh, which I was giving, but I couldn't find it on the, uh, on the website. Anyway, uh, that kind of goes into my direction, and Joe knows that. Uh, I am I'm against over vaccination and uh, I think our bodies are uh, quite well equipped to you know, I, I like to make my own antibodies they are tailor-made by my body and I think they work quite nicely for me and um, I, I think we sometimes overdo it and uh, we may even affect our immune systems when we are trying to to do something that our body really didn't want to do. So you, I, I remember the wise words of a biology teacher that when, whenever you fool around with Mother Nature, you will lose very often. <laughs> and you got to be careful over there. Okay. I think those are wise comments. Thank you, Dieter. Okay. Right. okay. Gentlemen, let's take a quick break. We have to thank our sponsors again before we get to the second half of the show. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IEQ industry subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com Dry Ease Products providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com John Don Products where restoration and abatement contractors shop at j-o-n-d-o-n well, I think this subject is on everyone's mind, and it's bioterrorism, and we'd like to move into that. Dr. Zelikoff, would an, in, would an intentional event, bioterrorism event, seem any different than an accidental or a natural occurring event? Well, that's a great question, and like all great questions, the answer begins with it depends. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 
likely not it would not look different from what might be interpreted as a particularly bad cold virus or maybe even a localized outbreak of influenza. The reason I say that is that most of the scenarios by which bioterrorism might take place are via the aerosol route. So take an infectious organism or even a toxin, but usually this is talked about in the context of infectious organisms, and aerosolize it in such a way that it can spread reasonably long distances, let's say a few miles, which would, of course, infect tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in a densely populated city. And, of course, almost independent of what the organism would be, when it's inhaled, it will present with, and presuming it's infectious, it will present with a cough, a fever, and perhaps changes on a chest X-ray. So it will initially be seen as, well, probably a pneumonia, community-acquired pneumonia, or maybe influenza, or maybe a new strain of influenza, or a particularly bad cold virus, or perhaps a novel new virus like the SARS virus from just a few years ago. That's the way it will probably present. You could think about the possibility that bioterrorism could take place through the food supply or through the water supply, in which case it will probably present as a gastrointestinal illness and will likely be written off as, well, a bad stomach virus or something like that. The key to making the diagnosis or, maybe better said, raising the suspicion that there is a bioterrorism event taking place is if a cluster of people who are otherwise healthy all get ill at the same time. So it's pretty rare for healthy adults or healthy kids, especially healthy adults, to come down with severe respiratory illness that takes them to the hospital and gets them admitted to the hospital. Pretty rare for that to happen. And I would say in a city the size of Albuquerque, where I am, which is about 400,000 people, or the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area, or even a city as large as Los Angeles, if five or six people showed up in area hospitals who were otherwise healthy, who all had a very bad respiratory illness, so bad that the doctor felt they needed to be admitted, just a handful, five people, in a 24-hour period, I would posit to you that that's a very unusual event. Now, it's not unusual for people to get colds or to get mild coughs and a sore throat. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a severe enough set of symptoms. We call it a syndrome in the disease monitoring world that makes the doctor in the emergency room or perhaps even a vet who's seeing an animal who has similar symptoms very worried. Worried enough to perhaps do unusual diagnostic tests that wouldn't normally be ordered and also to admit them to the hospital. And I would posit to you that half a dozen cases like that in a city the size of Pittsburgh, maybe a few more in the city the size of Los Angeles, would be extraordinarily unusual and should raise the alarm. Now, lest someone think that this is a silly statement, think about what happened in New York City 
when West Nile fever, which is a virus disease, somehow got introduced into the bird population in and around the Bronx Zoo back in the late 1990s. What happened there was that birds started to die. A veterinarian who worked at the Bronx Zoo noted that two uh, uh, North American birds, not zoo birds, but North American birds, died. And those, and those two birds were enough for her to say, this is so unusual that I'm going to actually do an autopsy or a necropsy on these birds. And what she found with these two birds was that they both had severe inflammation of their brains. And that was so unusual, just two birds, two birds, that she then went the next step, which was to do something that isn't usually done, to get an electron microscope of samples from these birds' uh, central nervous systems. And she saw virus particles. And she said, oh, my God, there's something terrible going on here because birds don't usually die from what is encephalitis and inflammation of the brain in short periods of time. At the same moment, almost almost within a a few weeks, um, two humans, both elderly, were admitted at two separate hospitals. I believe they were on Long Island, but certainly in the New York City area, with encephalitis. But because they were in two separate hospitals, and because we have no systematic disease surveillance system based on syndromes like encephalitis, which is not a diagnosis, it's a it's a description of what's going on. None of the public health officials in New York City were aware of these two isolated cases, but I would bet you today that if two people who are otherwise healthy showed up in two separate New York area hospitals with encephalitis, and that was reported to public health officials, and they showed up within 24, 48 hours of each other, there would be an instantaneous investigation and unusual biologic and unusual diagnostic tests would be ordered to try to see if there was an unusual agent involved. But still today, we don't have the ability to do that. So by, to, to, to summarize, bioterrorism could appear in multiple ways, and the key is that it will almost certainly be an unusual agent, an unusual organism, that we typically don't do diagnostic tests for, the doctors don't see, therefore don't recognize because you see what you know and you know what you see in medicine just like in anything else any other profession and it will be overlooked unless we have some better more general way of capturing the fact that otherwise healthy adults are suddenly ill with an unusually severe set of signs and symptoms which we call a symptom now i i've got to follow up on that doctor um the the group of people we deal with do indoor environmental quality. They deal with indoor environmental quality issues. And, and this is a little off the, the subject today, but I want to ask a quick question. As far It seems to me that you feel that a bioterrorism event would be more likely to occur in the outdoor air than somebody intentionally causing a problem within a building, let's say, of uh, 70 stories or whatever because it wouldn't be detected as quickly. Is that accurate to say? Is that? Um, I, I didn't mean to give that impression. I, I can see how you might have gotten that. I, I didn't mean to say that it would, uh, that a bioterrorism event would, would most likely occur in the outdoor environment. I, 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 in fact, I think that it is more likely to occur in a semi-enclosed uh, indoor environment, meaning a large building. 
and indeed the one bioterrorism event that we have had in the United States, clearly an intentional act of introduction of disease on a large scale uh, was at the Senate Heart Building um, back in 2003 when anthrax was mailed to two senators and the organism, which uh, is a spore, so it's inert uh, until it comes in contact with tissue, was in a form that made it easily aerosolized when the envelope was opened. And from two or three envelopes, we don't know exactly how many, but there were at least two um, envelopes that, that had anthrax spores in them, the entire heart building, the Senate heart building on Capitol Hill, was contaminated. Um, and as a result of that, um, many hundreds of people w uh, were exposed to anthrax, and in fact, uh, we know of many hundreds who had some anthrax spores in their noses. So an indoor environment where the air uh, is recirculated, particularly if it's a very fine particle aerosol, something on the order of a couple of microns in size, can rapidly disperse throughout a building, sometimes can disperse throughout the building before the HVAC system uh, has a chance to eliminate uh, that, that organism. And we've even seen the same thing, um, albeit unintentionally, with disease that's occurred in airplanes, tuberculosis being the leading example of one infected person in an airplane contaminating the air in an obviously enclosed environment and infecting multiple other people. Do you lose sleep over this? Okay, and, and anything in particular, any organism in particular that gives you nightmares? It's not so much the organism in particular. It's it, uh, rather what it is is our continuing um, spotty ability to identify unusually severe, uh, unusually ill people or animals, and get that information dispersed. To decision makers in a timely way. That's what keeps me awake at night. So even if we never have a bioterrorism event, it's sobering to, to realize that in the past three years, we've had foodborne outbreaks of salmonella just in the past two months, and we still don't know where that outbreak started. Last year it was E. coli, and at about the same time last year, there was a small outbreak of foodborne botulism, uh, which killed a few people. Uh, and the E. coli outbreak hospitalized uh, quite a number of people and resulted in severe um, uh, morbidity, in, in this case renal failure, uh, in a bunch of uh, the people who were infected. Yet it took us weeks to become cognizant of what was going on because we have no, we have no national infectious disease surveillance and information dispersal network that works. And so, therefore, isolated cases were thought to just be isolated cases. There was no recognition for several months in, in each of these outbreaks that there was, in fact, a national problem. That is what keeps me awake at night. Because even if we never have a bioterrorism event, it's certain we're going to have an inadvertent foodborne outbreak of, of disease. Or we may have introduction via the bird population or, some, or the animal population of another novel zoonotic disease, like occurred with SARS, for example. SARS is, 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 an, is an instructive example in sort of the opposite way, which is, which is that people got sick, 
it was recognized that people were getting sick, albeit a little bit after the initial cases occurred. But because we had no systematic surveillance in Asia or in the United States or, or even in Canada, which is where most of the North American cases were, it was feared early on and for many weeks after the initial identification of this strange new novel disease that it was the next long overdue pandemic of influenza. There is a pervasive belief among some people in the public health community that pandemics occur at more or less regular intervals. There's absolutely no evidence for that, by the way, uh, but there's still a belief, uh, long, long held, um, almost a mantra that pandemics will occur and we're overdue for one. So here was an example where we had introduction of an organism that looked like influenza, it wasn't, that we reacted to as if it were influenza, and we restricted travel and trade that cost who knows how many tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars, when it was blatantly obvious from even the minimal amount of disease surveillance that was being done at the time that this was not a human-to-human -human communicable disease, that it was not the next pandemic of influenza. So a good disease surveillance system not only can help you identify something when there's a problem, which is what we as humans tend to be most concerned about, but it also tells you when there isn't a serious problem or one that you need to uh, ring the alarm for. That turns out to be actually a much more costly and much more common problem in daily public health, the so-called false alarm or false positives. It's the bane of the existence of public health. And what a good surveillance system almost certainly will be able to do is to keep us from spending time and precious resources when we don't need to. It will tell us in a timely fashion what the dynamics of the disease are. How fast is this growing? And when you go back and you look at the SARS data, uh, this was before even the organism was identified, so we just had a syndrome, a description, which was healthy people with bad respiratory illness who shouldn't have bad respiratory illness who traveled to Southeast Asia or had contact with someone who did. That was SARS, the Severe Adult Respiratory Syndrome. If you look at all those cases as they were reported, well, the, number of, the cumulative number of cases grew in a perfectly linear fashion. That's not at all what you would expect with influenza if it were per communicable from person to person. It would grow much more rapidly than linear. So a good surveillance system at the time could have told us what we weren't dealing with. It might not have told us what we were dealing with, but it could have kept us from making decisions that ended up being very, very costly. Well, you seem to have already commented on the current state of disease reporting in the U.S. and that that wasn't, it's not very encouraging, I guess. What's the elapsed time at this point in time for, uh, for determining whether there is one of these pandemics or epidemics? Um, we, we don't have a lot of data to say, um, so it's um, a, a bit speculative. But based on the foodborne outbreaks that we've had, um, it's, it's many weeks to several months. Uh, that's, that's many weeks too late if, heaven forbid, we should be dealing with a communicable disease or, uh, God forbid, a bioterrorism, uh, an intentionally introduced organism uh, that either could be communicable or would have high lethality unless it were treated very early on in its course. So I'm, 
I'm, I'm going on recent experience, despite the fact that um, we uh, allegedly have surveillance in major hospitals and a few large clinics around the country, that information, even when it arrives to state and federal public health officials, seems to get stuck somewhere. And uh, it isn't turned around and then dispersed to people who need the information in a timely fashion. It's on the order of weeks. What we need is that information to be dispersed in the order of hours to days at most if, if we are going to effectively respond to a pandemic when we have the ability to contain it or a bioterrorism event when we, when we have the ability to, to prevent it from causing severe um, mortality or morbidity. Can you suggest uh, how the system could be improved? Well, um, I have personal experience uh, with this, so I'm a, little bit, I'm a little bit biased, but we have really good data now. After five years of, of operating a system that's very different from what exists um, with the CDC and with most states in the northwest portion of Texas, instead of depending on laboratory-based diagnosis, which is essentially what most of our surveillance is, and instead of depending on trends time trends in diagnosis codes that are scribbled down by harried physicians in emergency rooms, which tend to be very inaccurate or sometimes not very timely. What we've done in Northwest Texas over the past five years is uh, we've, we've put on the desktop of computers of dozens of doctors and also veterinarians in the Northwest Texas area, so roughly an area that has about a million people living in it and heaven knows how many animals where physicians in, in about 15 to 20 seconds can report a case that they regard as unusual, meaning unusually severe or with unusual signs and symptoms. They don't have a diagnosis. They don't know the organism. Uh, they don't have a blood test that specifically tells them what is going on. Rather, what they do is they report signs and symptoms. Signs are what the doctor finds on exam. Symptoms are what you complain about. And they report them in people that they judge to be seriously ill. And we've had three major successes with, with this approach. And the name of the system is called the Syndrome Reporting Information System, or CIRRUS for short. Um, and it's, as I say, it's been used now by two large public health jurisdictions in, in Texas for five years. And they're doing it not as part of an experiment. They're doing it because they need to have good disease surveillance in the area. And they... They adopted the system because they, they believe, um, and, and now the data supports the fact that it works. We've had three major successes with Cirrus. The first was there was a bioterrorism, um, an apparent bioterrorism event in 2003 when a physician at the medical school at Texas Tech reported to the local FBI that strains of plague that he had collected from around the world, he was an expert in plague, had disappeared. And as you might imagine, this made the FBI rather nervous, mm -hmm. uh, especially at the time, um, uh, because we uh, were in the run-up to uh, the war in Iraq, and it was a, it was a, a very, very uh, uncertain time. And the FBI, of course, notified the local public health department that because our system was running, the local public health department was able to monitor the human and animal population. Plague, after all, could affect animals if it were dispersed intentionally into the air, 
or even into the food or water supply. Um, and they were able to see immediately that there was nothing going on. And they were able to apprise clinicians on a, literally on an hour-by-hour basis, of whether or not they were seeing anything that even remotely resembled any of the forms of plague. And the bottom line was not a single dollar was spent doing unnecessary diagnostic tests anywhere. The acid test wasn't beating uh, the standard public health surveillance to the punch. The acid test was beating CNN to the punch, and they did. (laughs) So that was the first example. The second was early identification of an influenza outbreak at a time when it it generally doesn't occur in Texas. And probably the most significant one was during Katrina. You remember that um, uh, terrible disaster where many thousands of people had to be evacuated from New Orleans. Well, it turned out about about 800 of them ended up in an abandoned uh, Air Force base uh, as evacuees in West Texas. And they had been stressed. They had been subjected to God knows what kind of organisms walking through sewage water and seawater. And many were ill when they arrived at this uh, abandoned Air Force base where they were cared for for several weeks in West Texas in in, uh, 2005. Well, of course, uh, public health officials were very concerned since there were 800 people, all of whom had been exposed to multiple organisms crowded together, that they might have communicable infectious disease problems on their hands. And so they immediately installed this disease surveillance system on the computers at the little medical clinic that was an ad hoc medical clinic set up at the, at the Air Force Base. And they were able to determine very rapidly whether or not they had a communicable infectious disease problem on their hands. And they were also able to apprise physicians of the unusual infectious diseases that none of the physicians had ever seen before that could be in the population. And so it was a dramatic success in two ways. People who were truly ill with unusual organisms were appropriately treated, and no unnecessary tests or antibiotics were used because it became very, very clear early on that there was not communicable infectious disease among these 800 people. So those are our three successes, and I think they're rather potent. It sounds to me like one of the keys to your uh, fix for this problem is to tie together the veterinary world and the medical community. Is that happening in other parts of the country other than uh, Texas and the area where you were working? Not to the best of my knowledge, no. Unfortunately not. And that would be probably one of the, I'm assuming one of the things you would recommend we get on. Oh, absolutely. All of the diseases, if you, all of the infectious diseases that have caused serious problems mostly economic, but which have been disruptive in the United States in the past, oh, 10 to 15 years, have all been diseases, with only one exception that I can think of, that were zoonotic, meaning they started off in the animal population. And so to not have real-time disease surveillance in both animals and humans is to completely miss the boat. Uh, one other example that I'll quickly mention was there was an, a, a, an animal imported from Central Africa that brought a disease into the country called monkeypox, a, 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 a disease that sort of looks like smallpox. It, thank God, isn't smallpox. 
but what sort of looks like smallpox and is infectious for humans and on occasion can cause very bad disease in humans. And th this, this animal infected other animals in uh, animal stores, um, uh, including prairie dogs, which are adopted as pets, uh, bought as pets, traded in, in pet shows and trade shows in, in the Midwestern portion of the United States. And monkeypox occurred in some humans, was of course misdiagnosed, and nobody knew where it came from. And that's because there was no animal disease reporting, and it was only in retrospect that we knew. Well, unless you know where the monkeypox is coming from, since we don't have any antibiotics to treat it, and we don't have any vaccine for it, at least not one that we would feel comfortable giving, you have to identify the source of the disease in order to stop it from spreading. And it was only by really a series of fortunate, uh, lucky events that uh, that the disease didn't spread further in the human population, then it was finally recognized what the what the original source was. But it, once again, it took weeks. Let's go to the roundup here. We're, we have a segment of the show where we bring everybody back together and ask a few final questions. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. got everybody unmuted now and let's start with Dr. Wow. Any questions or comments for Dr. Zelikoff? Oh, certainly. Uh, a, a bunch of them. And I, I, I must say I agree with a lot of things he said. If you, uh, if, 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 if an MD today is expected to see 250 people in one day, uh, he is overworked. I don't care what other name you give it. But uh, he mentioned in, in, in passing that even if if you were to distribute an aerosol of a small size, three micrometers or thereabouts in diameter or thereabouts. Unfortunately, there isn't an HVAC system anywhere in the country. There may be one in a nuclear power plant that will filter out these particles. In other words, a normal heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system is actually a wonderful distribution system for any nasty things that somebody may introduce uh, uh, near the fan of that um, uh, system because the filters are just not designed for that. And Joe heard, has heard that from me several times. Mo most of the filters that we have protect the equipment, not the lungs of the people who are working in these buildings where they are installed. Uh, I'm in complete agreement with that. You're, you're exactly right. I, I don't like to emphasize the point for obvious reasons, but right. you're exactly right. And the other thing is, and where I lose sleep over it, I had colleagues years ago at the University of Pittsburgh from the Infectious Disease Department, and I don't know whether that is possible, and we, I certainly don't want to give anybody any ideas, but from what I remember is that somebody who is good in microbiology and with a small investment, not hundreds of millions of dollars, basically in his garage with a computer and an incubator and a couple of animals, is it possible that, that somebody could tailor make an agent, whether it's a bacterium or whether it's a virus, I don't care. Is it possible that somebody could make an agent and introduce that one 
idea by uh, migrating birds or or rats or mice. Uh, they are wonderful uh, <laughs> animals uh, to distribute it. Do you think that is still possible and that can get undetected, can go undetected? Well, the latter is certainly true that it would go undetected yeah. um, because it can be done in a very small environment. That's, yeah, that's what they yeah. said. They said any quote, anybody can do it. Um, and uh, is, it, is it possible to come up with a truly novel organism? I suppose it is. Yeah. Uh, but there are perfectly bad pathogens out there already, anthrax being the leading one among them, yeah. uh, that are naturally occurring in the soil where you don't really have to worry about whether or not the organism is going to be infectious for humans. You already know that it is. Yes. So and you uh, don't have to do the experiments. <laughs> you don't have to do the experiments. And then it just becomes a matter of how you distribute it. Yeah, yeah. And, right. uh, it's uh, it's it's fri to me it's frightening and in fact I'm, I'm I am surprised that nothing has happened in that direction really. I, I I am as well and I hope that nothing does happen. Yeah. Let me ask if if we do have some kind of uh, event. I know that hospitals and uh, some of the indoor environmental quality people that we work with work with hospitals and advise them on oh on ways of isolating these cases have you seen any improvement in that area are we you know on a scale of one to ten how far along are we in being able to maybe isolate some of these problems uh, I think it's a rather fluid um, uh, number uh, certainly uh, after the uh, the heart building anthrax letter attacks in 2003 there was a huge flurry of interest um, in precisely this question. And I think for, for a while, uh, because it appeared in medical journals, because there were continuing medical education courses and articles that appeared, uh, people were a bit more up to speed. Uh, but memories fade very quickly. Um, other problems are certainly more pressing than, than, than bioterrorism uh, or even novel infectious disease. And I'm afraid we've sort of slid backwards again. I'm not the least bit confident that if we had an unusual pathogen or a bioterrorism pathogen, that it would be recognized. Um, I am modestly confident that if we had a simple syndrome-based, not a disease-based, but a simple syndrome-based reporting system where a doctor could effectively push a button, answer a few questions in 15 seconds, on cases that simply struck him as being unusual. Doctors are very good at saying there's something weird going on here. They may not know what it is, but they're very sensitive to the, and, and actually very accurate in, in identifying something strange going on. Then if there's a cluster, two, three, four cases uh, in, the, in, in a city the size of Pittsburgh, then the really knowledgeable people about bioterrorism, since you're, you're, you're focusing specifically on that, who are in public health would be alerted to the fact that there was an unusual cluster, they would be the ones who would make the diagnosis quickly. But they have to be alerted to the cluster, and they're not being. And I think uh, the huge difficulty is if you have three top-notch uh, uh, hospitals, and there's one case in each of one of them, how do they communicate? I said, I have seen a strange thing. I, they don't well, that's make, right, and, and that's precisely... They don't make phone calls. If they don't, you're exactly right. Yeah. If they don't make phone calls because they don't have the time. Right. That is the problem that we have bridged and solved, I, I would contend, with, with, this, with the Cirrus system. Because it's in multiple hospitals, because it's on multiple doctors' offices' desks, as soon as a case is reported, 
that case shows up on a map. Now, the clinical details and the name of the doctor who reported it is only available to the local public health official, but everybody can see that a case of severe hepatitis was just reported in Allegheny County. Well, maybe one case doesn't mean anything, but two do or three would, and if the public health official looks at those three cases and sees that they're all in daycare centers, we have the diagnosis immediately, don't we? And if they're not all in daycare centers, if they're in three adults, then something very strange is going on. Cliff, anything you wanted to add? Yeah, absolutely. My, my question's really financial. You know, I'm a sympathetic guy, and I'm a charitable guy. And, you know, had I, like you, developed a, a system like this, um, you know, I wouldn't have tried to donate it, you know, for free to the government. I, I would have, you know, tried to, you know, as an entrepreneur, I would have tried to somehow financially benefit it from that. You know, what was your motivation to, you know, spend all this time and effort developing this and then, you know, just give it away? Well, initially, some of the work was sponsored by um, the, US, the U.S. government in a, in a, in a very pilot-like uh, way. Um, but the problem was so severe, especially in light of the fact that we were, uh, and still are, at war, that it struck me that, that, that the risks were just extremely high, that uh, more, more than usual, that we might be dealing with, uh, if not a bioterrorism event, a confounding event that might make us think we were dealing with a bioterrorism event. Now, the, there is a company that has purchased the software and is, is now marketing it mm -hmm. and does, in fact, sell it, um, license it. But it's at a very modest cost. Uh, the actual cost of operating the CIRA software for a public health jurisdiction, let's say Allegheny County, is, is between 10 and 15 cents per person per year. Mm -hmm. So in a county that has, what's your population in Allegheny like, County now? Let's yeah, say a million. <laughs> Make it easy. <laughs> It's, it's what, about a million? Yeah, right. greater yeah. Pittsburgh area, yeah. So we're talking about $100,000 a year to operate the system, and that's, that's everything. That's including full IT support. There's no need to have a database or a server running it. The company that markets it, which is called Ares Corporation, does all of this, and it's extremely attractive. Um, doctors like it. They actually use it, um, unlike... Uh, their interaction with a public health system um, on, on a traditional basis, whereas your, your expert correctly pointed out, doctors don't make phone calls. They don't need one more darn phone call to make or you put on hold trying to reach a public health official. With Cirrus, that's not necessary. They just, it's a couple of clicks on the computer, poof, their case shows up on a map, and they can see if there are any other cases that are similar to theirs because it's instantaneously reflected on the map. The specific clinical details, of course, any confidential information is protected so that there's never been a violation of patient confidentiality uh, with the system. But it does facilitate instantaneous communication between and among public health officials and doctors. Are there any questions we didn't ask or issues that, that you'd like to comment on before we go? Just one point. Um, every year, uh, the Congress takes up in, um, in, in, health, in health appropriations bills uh, funding for disease surveillance. And some of it is done in the context of uh, the Defense Act that is passed every year, literally to address the bioterrorism problem, and some is done for traditional public health. I would encourage anybody who's uh, 
actually interested enough or concerned enough about this uh, hole that we have in our surveillance to simply suggest that a controlled trial be done. So the University of Pittsburgh has a system that I'm familiar with. I went to medical school there, and they have, they have a disease surveillance system that is based essentially on diagnosis codes. It's called RODS, R-O-D-S. And it, it, it's one of many systems uh, like it that is based on diagnosis codes. I don't believe that it has the ability to um, make a diagnosis or to notify people that something unusual is happening within hours. Their claim is that they can do it within a few days, and, and I believe they probably can within a few days, but that's not good enough. What I would like to see happen is a head-to-head -head trial a so-called controlled scientific trial, where for a few hundred thousand dollars in a city like Pittsburgh that already has one kind of surveillance system running, to introduce a Cirrus-like system, which depends on the doctor doing direct reporting when they think something unusual is going on, as opposed to checking off a diagnosis code that gets buried with thousands of other diagnosis codes and see which system performs better over the course of a year. It would cost us practically nothing. It would teach us a great deal. And all that would be required would be enough open-mindedness on the part of both academicians and public health officials to do a head-to-head -head test. And Pittsburgh's the perfect place to do it because there's already one kind of disease surveillance going on there. Let's test it against the system that is running in Texas where we have had demonstrable successes and see if there are th other things we can learn and perhaps the systems are complementary. I, I guess a question, have you ever uh, related with Dr. Dixon, Bruce Dixon with the county health department? It would seem that he might be the person that might be Oh, indeed I have. Um, okay. in indeed I have. I, I know Bruce well because when I was a medical student at the University of Pittsburgh, he was my attending physician. He was the first doctor that I had contact with when I started my clinical rotations at, at the university, and I hold him in very high regard. And he and I uh, were on a panel together about two years ago, um, sponsored by Cyril Wecht, oh, sure. on the problem of bioterrorism at Duquesne University. And I suggested it to Bruce, and I think he's actually interested. And he's certainly the kind of thoughtful, uh, most people, I certainly would, would characterize him as brilliant clinician who would be open to the possibility of, of trying um, two alternatives at the same time and seeing which one uh, plays out. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think it's within Bruce's um, ability to, to simply make this happen. Gotcha. Uh, I think he needs uh, other people behind him, but I think he's probably open to it. Um, he's certainly um, uh, more than capable of understanding the pluses and minuses of both approaches. How can our listeners contact you, Doctor? Um, well, they can certainly uh, feel free to uh, go to my website, which is uh, www.zelikoff.com. That's Z-E-L-I-C-O-F-F, two Fs like in Friday, Friday. And my contact information is there, my email and, and uh, my business phone. So <coughs> the first letter is Z, not S. That's right. Okay. Z. Okay. Like in Zebra. Okay. Like in Zulu. All right. Well, this is Joe Hughes. I want to say thank you so much to uh, Dr. Alan Zelikoff for joining us today, and uh, hopefully we'll get you back in the future. I also uh, want to make sure that we thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow.
My co-host, my co-host here, Cliff Slotnick. Always a pleasure. The wingman, Chris Boisel at the controls. And most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Last but not least, our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. All right, the Z-Man and I are going to take the week off on uh, Friday the 4th of July next week. We'll see you all back here on Friday, July, July 11th. 11th. And uh, we've got a nice show lined up for then. We're still waiting to get that final confirmation. Absolutely. But uh, we'll see you all back then for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.